Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about Alice Anderson, the owner of the first all-female garage in Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boonwurrung. We pay our respect to their elders past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. Before we begin this episode, I have a few content warnings. We're going to be briefly mentioning death by drowning. There's also going to be mentions of suicide, discussions of an accidental death by shooting, and historical misogyny and queerphobia. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other episodes. They all have content warnings at the beginning. This is like an idle off-topic question, but what motivates your decisions in content warnings to say queerphobia sometimes and homophobia sometimes and transphobia sometimes? I think it really just depends on the specific thing. Like in this case, it's kind of quite vague and just directed at people assigned female at birth who aren't conforming to what society expects of them. So that's why I said queerphobia, whereas specifically directed at like two women sleeping together, that I would say homophobia. Yeah. So yeah, I would just say queerphobia is like a general catch-all. I also feel like a lot of people just say homophobia when they mean queerphobia, and I try to avoid that. Yeah, no, that's generally true. People use homophobia as, like, a catch-all, even when they're talking about, like, discrimination against, like, gender non-conforming people. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's just in the same way that I want to avoid saying gay when I actually mean, like, the whole community. Oh, yes. And I want to avoid saying homophobia when I actually mean queerphobia or transphobia or whatever we are talking about. So, yeah, that's why. Before we get started, I do want to mention that if you're listening, you may have noticed that Eli, who is usually in these history episodes, and actually usually in every single one of our episodes... (laughs) Our fallen comrade. Our fallen comrade is not here today. And the reason for that is that... So, Alice Anderson was born and lived almost all of her life in Melbourne, where we record this podcast, and she is buried in Melbourne, and Eli and I went this morning to visit her grave, and it was quite hard to find, and we spent a long time in the hot sun walking around looking for her grave, and Eli is now recovering from that journey and lying down with a migraine. So (laughs) he won't be with us, but he's napping in the other room. So Alice Anderson was born in Melbourne on the 8th of June, 1897. Cool. She's the second of six siblings. Her parents were engineer Joshua Thomas Anderson, known as JT, and his wife, Ellen Mary Anderson. They were well-off Irish Protestant immigrants. So JT was, as I mentioned, an engineer and a businessman. He was the business partner of Sir John Monash. Oh, really? You're not Australian. You probably haven't heard of John Monash, but for Australians, he's very famous. He was an engineer, and he was also one of our most famous generals in World War One. One of our main universities is named after him. So, like, John Monash is, like, an important guy, and that kind of shows the level of society that JT was interacting at at this time when Alice was born. I'm going to make a very trivial comment at this moment, but it's always weird to me when it's, like, the 19th century and you get someone being called by their initials, like, JT or something, because it feels like <laughs> such a modern thing to do to me. Yeah, I don't know why. It's also quite an American thing. Like, Australians yeah. don't do it much. So it was interesting to me that he is called JT, and maybe his father was also called Joshua or something like that might be the reason. I'm not sure. Yeah. Alice grew up the first few years of her life in 
quite a wealthy household. They had servants. They lived in the wealthy suburb of Malvern. If you're from Melbourne, you'll know that Malvern is a well-off suburb. It's quite near here. It's quite near here. And Alice actually grew up, this will only mean anything to Irene, Alice grew up in Stanhope Street, which is coincidentally the street me and Irene went to primary school in. That's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) This is like when we did the lesbia episode and it was like the tram line outside the house when we were recording. Yeah, yeah. So Alice did grow up on the same street that we later went to primary school on. Did she go to our primary school? No, Alice didn't go to primary school. She had a governess when she was young. Oh, too bad. Oh, wait, Alice was a Catholic primary school. Yeah, ours was also a Catholic primary school, so she wouldn't have gone there. We'll talk a little bit later on about class and school choice and Alice's mother's opinions on that, and I'm sure you'll have some disparaging things to say. (laughs) And Alice actually moved out of Stanhope Street quite young as well. I don't know exactly what year, but maybe even before school age, because JT's business began to go quite badly. What year are we talking here? She was born in 1897, and this was around the early to mid-1900s that the business started to fail. And so JT and John Monash decided that one of them should leave the business and go and see if they could do better elsewhere, and the other would stay and try to kind of get things together and pay off the debts and things like that. That seems like a bad deal for whoever's staying behind. Like, what happens to the debts? Does John Monash just bugger off and is like, you can deal with that, JT? Oh, no, no, no. Pay that thousand pounds. They flipped a coin to decide who would leave and who who would stay. Okay. And JT left and John Monash stayed and later went on to become Australia's most famous engineer. So So it clearly was all right. (laughs) Bad luck, JT. I'm not sure of the exact trajectory of John Monash's career from here on out. Like, he's not that important in this episode. I just thought it was interesting because he's very famous and he's here. So they flipped a coin. JT won that coin toss and left the business. And the family moved around for a few years while JT looked for other work. Not very successfully. So they lived in New Zealand for a while. They went back to the UK and stayed with some of JT and Alan's families for a while. And they returned to Australia in 1907, having totally run out of money and being completely broke and having very little job prospects. They tried traveling a lot for a time when it had to happen by boat and took like weeks. That is true. Yeah, that definitely. I was quite surprised. Yeah, it must have been quite expensive to like go to New Zealand be like oops that was a mistake go to the UK be like this isn't working out and then come home again he had a job lined up when he went to New Zealand so the company may have paid for that or the I think it was employed by a council the council may have paid for that or I guess even if he was like I've got a job lined up it's not such a risk to pay for the passage when they went to the UK I'm not quite as sure what the financial situation is I know JT was quite uncomfortable while they were in the UK with the fact that they were accepting a lot of help from his and Ellen's families So it's possible that a family member paid for that passage? Or just that they knew they would have support there. Yeah, or that they could spend the last of their money on that because they knew they'd have somewhere to stay when they arrived. So it was like a short-term job he took in New Zealand then? He was in New Zealand for about a year and then JT had a brother who was very close to the family and lived with them sometimes and lived quite close to them other times. He died in a workplace accident in New Zealand and that was very traumatic for the family, and that was kind of the impetus for leaving New Zealand. Okay, okay. So they moved back to Australia in 1907, so when Alice was about 10, and they moved into a cottage called Springbank, which is near the town of Narbathong, about 100 kilometres northeast of Melbourne. Okay. So JT had bought the land for Springbank when he was at university, and he'd built it with his uni friends on their holidays, so he and John Monash had, like, cut the wood by hand and... So when you say kind of lodge, they came back completely broke. They came back with real estate. 
they didn't have any money, but they owned this land up at Narbathong and they owned this kind of, it was a two bedroom cabin. It didn't have a real floor. It had like a little kitchen off to the side and had been built by uni students on their holidays. Okay. So it was just like a little log cabin thing. Yeah. So it's just a little log cabin thing. So JT was away a lot looking for work. Ellen was staying in the cottage with their now six children. And so reading Ellen's letters at the time, this was obviously like a very hard time. They couldn't afford much. They were struggling to buy food. She was very isolated from the society she was used to living in, in Malvern, for example. So she really struggled. But Alice really loved living at Springbank. She loved being outdoors. She loved being in the bush. And she had a level of freedom that she would never have had if she'd grown up in the city. I was going to comment that when you said that they moved to like a log cabin in the country. I was going to be like, look, this sounds possibly hard, but also I feel like it would be a better childhood in some ways. Yeah, well, I think Alice definitely found a better childhood. Her oldest sister, Frankie, I think didn't find it a better childhood because Frankie was kind of old enough to be helping Ellen with yeah. looking after the house and dealing with those problems. Yeah, and Whereas, I guess also maybe was more entrenched in the society that she'd left behind. That's true. She's not much older than Alice, but she was a little bit older, so she would have been more used to how they had grown up. Yeah. Whereas Alice was just like, this is great. I love it. She was allowed to wear pants, which she'd never been allowed to wear before. She learned to ride a horse astride, which she'd also never learned before, rather than riding side saddle. I know we love to talk about animal names here on Queer as Fact, so the horse was called Winnie. So is my car. (laughs) Irish car is also called Winnie. That's in theme, because this is going to be a very car-themed episode. It's good. So yeah, Alice had a great time. She was very outgoing. She loved to try new things and get into, you know, the sort of trouble that a 10-year-old in the bush gets into. Frankie describes her a bit later on during her teens as my small and pugnacious sister, <laughs> which I just really liked. I love the word pugnacious. I feel like it's, it's really like a very classy word for someone who's ready fighting. to throw down at any time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Alice was also a bit of a bully to her younger siblings. She was yeah. quite like domineering in that way. Yeah children yeah like i don't think that's like a negative reflection on her personality i think she was just a very pugnacious child who had three younger sisters when alice's older brother Stuart left home when alice was 12 she took over most of his chores with jt not being around that was a lot of the kind of male chores around the house so she had learned to shoot from Stuart, and she would hunt for food or she'd fish, she'd chop wood, she'd do all those kind of things around the house. As we were discussing before the podcast started, it's so weird how meat is masculine and vegetables <laughs> are feminine in our society. What's with that? Yeah, we were talking about this pre-recording. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, in this case, uh, cooking the food is feminine, which is what Frankie did, but hunting the food is masculine, which is what Stuart did until he left, and then Alice did it along with her younger sister, Katrine, who would help her out. How do you spell Katrina? It's Katrina with an E instead of an A. Interesting. Yeah. Never seen that before. Three years later, when Alice was 15, Frankie also moved out. And Alice tried to take on kind of Frankie's domestic chores as well. She was an awful cook. Uh, Her sister Claire describes her cooking as adventurous, terrible, and ghastly. (laughs) So she kind of stuck to the masculine chores whenever she could. So let's talk about school. All right. Alice and her siblings were enrolled in the local school, which was in Healesville. That gives you an idea if you're from Victoria of where Narbathong is. I think I've driven past the road sign to Narbathong before. Probably. It's a bit past Healesville. Yeah, I've driven in that direction before. Yeah. Alan had a lot of misgivings about sending her kids to this school. She was quite concerned that they would get nits. She was even more concerned that they would pick up an Australian accent from their classmates. Ah, yes. And so she wouldn't let them stay after school to play with any of their classmates or anything like that. 
Remember that social isolation you're suffering from, Alan? <laughs> what if you didn't impose it on your children? <laughs> but she doesn't want to talk to her with an Australian accent. Our parents got, like, vocal coaching at school. Yeah, so. because of their Australian accents. Yes, so that they sounded less Spoken. working class. Yeah, that um, was still a thing. That would have been in the 60s. 60s. That was yeah. still a thing. If you're an American listener, you might not know about the hang-ups Australians have about how we talk, but uh, we sure do have a lot of them. <laughs> Australians are just, like, 98% cultural cringe. Yeah, that, that's all that happens here. The um, other 2% is koalas. <laughs> so JT believed that education for girls was a waste of time and could be actively detrimental for them. Thanks, Joshua. Yeah, good job, Josh. But Ellen believed the opposite and had put aside some of her own money that she'd inherited from her grandfather to pay for her daughter's education. So when Alice was 15, Alan sent her to Melbourne Church of England Girls Grammar School, which was known for encouraging its students to be independent and to pursue a university education. Cool. So Alice went to Melbourne Girls Grammar. Oh. Yeah, that's what that is. It's got a longer name at the time. Now it's just called Melbourne Girls Grammar. It's quite a fancy and upmarket school. I was going to say, I used to teach a girl piano who went there, and her mother paid me $50 for a half-hour lesson because finding smaller change was too much effort. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's the society that Ellen really wants her kids to be in and is, like, trying very hard to get her kids to be in. And obviously it's a struggle because they don't have any money. Because JT, I haven't talked a lot about his, like, business ventures, but JT is, he's not a good businessman. Like, he's just not. John Monash was probably not that disappointed when JT left. (laughs) Yeah, the impression I got of the split between John Monash and JT was that JT, like, had these kind of crazy ideas that might, like, stick and be something really good. But John Monash was the one who was very methodical and organized and was like... Doing the, like, actual practical running of the business. Yeah, and so together they worked well, but split JT just ends up in a lot of debt and things like that. He's also quite... Like, he puts a lot of people offside and rubs people up the wrong way. So he has neither social skills nor business skills. That's correct. Maybe you should have become an academic. They don't need social skills. He did lecture at uni as well. Oh, really? Lecture in engineering at Melbourne Uni. That was actually how he met. So I mentioned that he met Monash at uni, but it was actually the case that JT tutored Monash in engineering at uni. Oh, really? Monash was failing engineering and JT tutored him so that he passed engineering and became a famous John Monash. (laughs) Yep. I feel like everyone else is going to be like, who's John Monash? Why do you care about this guy? So, yeah, Alice did good at school. Like, she had some catching up to do because she'd been at a very small rural state school and she'd now moved to one of Melbourne's top schools. But she was very intelligent. She got along really well with the other girls. She seemed to have a great time. She also seemed to have been quite concerned about leaving her family and she'd write these long letters home to her sister Katrine about what to do around the house and how to care for the animals and how to make sure she was looking after their mum and all this kind of stuff. Unfortunately, the next few years were very difficult for the Anderson family. In December 1913, Stuart drowned off the coast of New South Wales. JT also undertook several particularly disastrous business ventures and money for Alice's schooling ran out. So she returned back home to Springbank and she never finished high school. But back at Springbank, she turned her attention to educating her younger sisters, hoping that if they got a good enough education they could win scholarships to go to school in Melbourne without them having to have the money. So for three hours every morning she would run class for her three sisters Claire, Katrina and Joan. She'd write regularly to her old teachers from Melbourne Girls Grammar to send textbooks and say what sort of lessons they were doing and she'd set her sisters exams and mark their exams and everything. Alice is so wholesome and hardworking. She's a very wholesome and hardworking person. Yeah. <laughs> so and then in 1915 Claire sat the entrance exam for Melbourne Girls Grammar and she received a full three-year scholarship. Oh. 
Claire actually went on to also study engineering at Melbourne Uni. Oh, nice. I think she was the first girl to do it. She must have been one of the first. Yeah, she was definitely amongst the first, if not the very first. Good job, Alice. Yeah, so good job, Alice and Claire. It paid off. So after leaving school, Alice started working alongside JT as his assistant and his secretary. I hope she is better at business than he is. (laughs) Well, she's going to run a business later on, so, you know, she's doing okay. JT's latest business venture was called Black Spur Motor Service. Okay. And so cars were kind of just becoming more of a big thing that people were actually buying and driving and having rather than this kind of weird experimental thing. And so JT's business plan was a motorized bus service to take passengers along the dangerous Black Spur Road from Healesville to Nobbethum. Okay, that sounds like a plausible business plan. Yeah, so he wanted it to be a cooperative. So mm-hmm. he got a lot of businessmen and so forth from the community on board to put in money and everything. Seemed to be going well. And then on a spur-of-the-moment decision in Melbourne, JT saw an incredibly expensive luxury car in a showroom, put down a deposit on it. The deposit was £240, which could have outright bought the kind of car that would actually be suited to this job. <laughs> JT, why are you like it? <laughs> this gives you an idea of what JT is like. Like, you can do this if it's just you, but you have, like, the whole town on board. Yeah, so he bought this car, and all his members of his cooperative were like, well, we're not paying that off, because that's That's ridiculous. So on Alice's 18th birthday, a few months later, JT was obviously regretting his purchase, and he gave Alice the keys for her 18th birthday. Then told her she could have the car, but she would also have to have the debt, which was... That's a bad birthday present. (laughs) It is a bad birthday present. And the remaining debt on the car was £350. Alice is earning about £80 a year. Okay. It's a lot of money. And Alice is in debt for a long time, partly because of this car. Why did she agree to this? Because she really wanted a car. Okay. She really liked the idea of having a car and she was very excited about cars. I guess she she was 18 and it was a luxury car. Yeah, she's 18 years old. It's a luxury car. She thinks it's really cool. So she took the car. Okay. So she took the car. She started trying to learn to drive in paddocks. By this time, you did actually need a license to drive a car, which was a relatively recent thing that had just come in. And so she started asking the men who worked at Blackspur to teach her to drive. So Blackspur did take off as a company. They did get a more reasonable car. Okay. (laughs) It did happen. (laughs) So it wasn't unheard of for women to drive at the time, but it was still something that society was pretty uncomfortable with. Does she still get to wear pants in Narbathon? I think, yeah, she did. She did. As far as I know, she just always wore pants. Good. Good for you, Alice. So, for example, the Australian Motorist magazine around the time wrote, Women drivers lack the nerve and judgment of the stronger sex. They are not so alert as men and become confused in a crisis. Women have not the decision or strength to manoeuvre a car properly. The strength. (laughs) Sorry, you're too weak to turn the steering (laughs) wheel. It's too hard. (laughs) To be fair, driving then was a very more physical effort thing yeah. to driving now. It was more physical effort. The risks were much higher. Cars were less safe and, you know. I mean, cars were less safe, but there were fewer of them. That's true. You were much less likely to be in a car crash with another car. But, like, given the number of cars that were on the road, the road toll was quite high. Okay. I don't have the exact numbers. Yeah. So Alice really struggled to get these men to teach her to drive because these were the kinds of attitudes going around. Mm-hmm. But eventually they agreed provided she first learned to take apart an engine and put it back together again. Okay. I don't know if that was a genuine, like, if you're going to drive a car, you have to know how a car works. So if that was like, well, this will stop her. But um, she was pretty keen. She did it. 
She learned to drive, and the next year she got her license and began working as a driver for Black Spur. She just had the one luxury car at Black Spur. <laughs> she had the one luxury car at Black Spur, and she used it to do the mail run. Why didn't they get, like, wealthy people in it? Like She also did that. Her first driving role at Black Spur was the mail run, mm-hmm. which was just her in her car filled with mail. Yeah. But she did also start doing tours in her fancy car as well. Okay. But yeah, the first job she got was doing the mail run. She would do that alone. She was the first woman to drive across Black Spur. Cool. And she got very good at it. She could get her car out of bogs by herself. When her headlights failed, she would have a torch in one hand and she'd drive along in the dark with the other hand. She was like pretty impressive. So she did that for a while. And then later that year, she decided to move to Melbourne, where she got a job as a junior clerk at Caulfield Town Hall. That sounds much more boring. It does sound much more boring, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But on weekends, she would take her co-workers on tours in her luxury car up to the Dandenong Ranges. That would be like, I work like a random admin job. Imagine if I just owned a luxury car as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Especially when, like, at this time, like, there aren't many cars. Women don't drive. Yeah, that's like having a friend who owns a small aeroplane. Yeah, she was the only woman in her workplace as well. So, like, this random woman turns up, possibly wearing pants. She probably couldn't wear pants to work, sure. I I don't... You have to look more conventional to get, like, a town hall admin job. I don't know exactly what it was like working in the town hall, but I do know she was the only woman there. Yeah. And she's like, here's my fancy car. Do you want to go dancing on on the weekends? And the co-workers were like, sure, sounds great. So Alice didn't really know anything about the Dandenong Ranges area. It was just, like, reasonably close to Melbourne where she could drive people around in the bush. And oh, yeah. she'd, like, boil them a billy of tea on a campfire and be like, this is what life in the bush is like, everyone. Okay. Yeah. Um, sounds good. And she'd also, like, confidently make up a lot of things about the Dandenong Ranges to say on her tours, which, like, she just didn't know. She just said whatever. Yeah. Her tours didn't always go smoothly. On one occasion, the car was pulled over on the side of a steep mountain road when the edge of the road started to crumble underneath it. So it's sort of like half falling off this cliff. Oh, no. They're all still sitting in the car. So Alice, like, very calmly instructed everyone sitting on the outside to crawl over all the people on the inside to kind of tip the balance of the car back until they could all get out of the car. And then once they'd all done that, she was like, oh, you know, this is nothing. It happens in the bush all the time. (laughs) While she's, like, internally screaming, I assume. I mean, at least she didn't drive all her friends off a cliff. Yeah, at least she didn't just drive all her friends podcast over. <laughs> By the time two women passing in their car pulled over to see what was going on and if she was all right, Alice was levering her car to safety and everyone else had gotten out and it was all good. Coincidentally, these two women were Jessie Macbeth, the matron of Lancewood Hospital, which was in Kew, where Alice happened to live, and Jessie's girlfriend, Kate Griffiths, who was a nurse who I believe worked at the hospital. I was about to ask whether they, like, immediately bonded over being the only three women in cars. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, they did from this moment on. Like, Alice and Jessie did become very good friends. So, like, yes. Yes is the answer they did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And we'll see more of Jessie later on. Excellent. Late in 1917, Alice resigned from her job at Caulfield Town Hall to expand her touring into a full-time garage business, operating out of the back shed of the house that she and Frankie were rooming at in Kew. So they just kind of went to their landlady, who also lived in the house, yeah. and were like, "Can we, I just want a business out of the shed. And the landlady was like, sure, do it. <laughs> so Alice did it. Who was Frankie? Hang on. Frankie's her sister. One of her several sisters. Oh. I mentioned Frankie when Frankie moved and Alice had to start. Oh, yeah, that's right. Frankie was the older sister. Sorry, yeah. I forgot. So there's yeah. Claire, Joan, Katrine, and Frankie. Frankie and Stuart. And, and Stuart, Stuart drowned. Yes. drowned. So there's Alice, five sisters. 
So Alice has begun her garage business. As was pretty normal for a garage at the time, Alice's business was a combined petrol station, mechanic, taxi service, and driving school. Okay, so it's just like, I have a car. It's just like, I have a car. Would you like to do a car thing? (laughs) Yeah. And as far as we know, Alice was the first woman in Australia to run such a business. And she really struggled even to get a mechanic's license to run this business because there was kind of no way for a woman to do that. So the only course offered in Melbourne was offered at the Working Men's College, which, as the name suggests, is for men. Yeah. The Working Men's College did offer some courses for women, but mechanic was not one of them yeah and so the other possibility was to get an apprenticeship and she had to search quite hard before she could find a garage willing to take on a woman as an apprentice so she opened up her garage and she started doing her apprenticeship at the same time so she's getting up in the morning going into the city where she does her apprenticeship doing a few hours there coming back out to queue doing a full day running a business going back doing a few more hours of her apprenticeship and then coming home okay big days well which is insane but within six months she had her mechanics license I guess you can sustain that for six months, maybe. Yeah. She didn't have to do it for too long. She's one of those people that's just, like, very intense. Like, she doesn't stop doing things at any time of the day or night. Mm. She's just a lot. So let's talk about some queer stuff. Alice's sister Claire recalls that around this time, Alice brought a friend to visit her family up at Springbank. She doesn't actually give a name for this friend, but she says, She was a very nice woman, about Alice's own age at the university, who rode a motorbike, who was a bit of a butch. Alice and she thought the other was fine. I love the fact that Claire is just like, this seems chill. <laughs> well, so... Claire- this is Alice's butch friend. They seem to be into each other. <laughs> yeah, the way Claire talks about Alice's sexuality is quite interesting, and I'll read you a few more quotes to give you an idea of it. Claire goes on to say about this woman that she visited a few times in like a very short space of time, and then her and Alice's relationship abruptly ended. Okay. And then Claire says, and I can think of why. The only reason why was that was Alice's first experience of homosexuality. Despite kind of acknowledging that this woman was homosexual and into Alice, Claire absolutely denies that Alice was attracted to women. And Claire talks about a few other women who she says sucked up to Alice and says that Alice enjoyed their attention. But her understanding is that like queer women were attracted to Alice and Alice didn't mind. Yeah. But Alice was not herself attracted to women. I did not know that the word butch used in that context was that old, to be honest. So this comment from Claire comes from interviews done much later in Claire's life. I think about the 80s. Oh, okay, okay. So that may not have been a word Claire would have used at the time to describe this woman. Okay. What time are we talking about now? This is about the 1917, 1918. Okay. So when is the war happening? So the war is going on. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yes, the war is occurring. So the main biography that I got a lot of my information from was written by a woman named Loretta Smith quite recently. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Loretta talks about is why Alice didn't go over as a driver oh, okay, in the yeah. war. And basically the reason she gives is she couldn't afford to because she had to support herself and her family. So Alice is like paying a lot of her sister's school fees and those kinds of things. Has she paid off the luxury car yet? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so she's in a lot of debt. She's trying to help support her family. Yeah. She really couldn't afford to just stop and go to France to drive ambulances. Yeah. For example, she did occasionally volunteer to pick up soldiers who were coming back when they got off the ship and drive them home or drive them to hospital or drive them wherever they needed to go. So the war is on. Okay. But Alice is not directly involved in it. Yeah. And since she only now has sisters, none of her immediate family is fighting in the war. What's JT doing? Just like, you know. JTing. Running black sperm motor service. Oh, yes. It eventually collapses, but not for a while. (laughs) 
Has he bought any more luxury cards? No, no, it's just going along. <laughs> All right, carry on, carry on. You won't really hear much more about JT. I can't remember exactly when it was in Alice's life. It's a bit later on, but JT had an affair. Okay. And uh, he told Katrine about it, and Katrine told Alice, and Alice was absolutely appalled and basically just refused to speak to JT after that. So okay. JT eventually just disappears from Alice's life because she won't have anything to do with him. Okay. Because she's so appalled that he's having an affair. So, yeah, JT's gone. So let's talk about Alice and her potential queerness. Oh, uh, yes. So there's a photo of Alice from this period, which shows her dressed in her chauffeur's uniform, which is what she wore for her job. Mm-hmm. She's got a little cap. Oh, good. It's very good. I would pay for her services. Very good. <laughs> so in this photo, she's sitting beside another young woman. They're holding hands. Alice has her arm around the other woman's waist. And one of her sisters has written on the back of the photo, Alice pretending to be the boyfriend of a polio victim she had taken on an outing. I see. Yep. <laughs> and when they were talked to about this later, the sisters remember this girl not just as a random polio victim who she'd taken on an outing, but as a family friend. So it appears to have been like a girl that Alice knew quite well. Okay. So this was photo was maybe like early in like when they'd met her then, if they labeled it as like Alice and polio victim. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure when the label was written or which of the sisters wrote it or anything like that. So I'm not really sure, but this was obviously a person who Alice was close to. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't know who this other woman is. We're not going to get, for example, like this is definitively Alice's girlfriend at any point in this episode. Okay. So don't get your hopes up for like a lesbians getting married episode. All right. So we're never going to get like, hey, babe, I'm putting on my silk kimono for you. Love Alice. Yeah. No, I'm afraid not. So you'll just have to take the snatches of queerness where you can find them. So by mid-1918, Alice's business was thriving. She bought a second car and she began advertising for some staff to work for her. Was her second car as classy as her first? I think her second car was like a normal car. Okay. Like the biography I read told me makes of car and I was like, that sure does have four wheels (laughs) and goes along the road. So the ad reads, Miss Anderson plans to make her business an all-woman organization and will shortly be increasing her staff. No man will have a chance on her payroll. So being an all-woman organization had its advantages. Wealthy mothers would much rather let their daughters and their friends go out with Alice as the driver than they would let them go out with a male chauffeur. And so much of Alice's early work was driving young, wealthy women to shopping or to the theater or to dances and often just accompanying them, like, you know, to basically just taking them shopping as a chaperone so their mothers were comfortable with them going out, which is kind of ironic given that Alice is also just, like, a 20-year-old woman. Yeah. And they were like, oh, my 20-year-old daughter and her friends, they can't go out alone, but they can go out with Alice. (laughs) But that is how wealthy women thought at the time, so... I guess it still makes sense that, like, if you send your daughters out with, like, another person that they're not close with, they will be less wild. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I guess there is someone that you can actually say this was your professional responsibility to get these girls home. She also provided driving lessons to older women, many of whom had just been kind of spending their whole life at home keeping house and never been able to kind of go out independently and do this kind of stuff. And Claire describes Alice's lessons as giving them a taste of freedom and of being your own person. That's nice. Once again, very wholesome and good. Alice's business was also one of the first, if not the first, Australian garage to offer what we now consider just a regular service where you check your car in the morning, they kind of check over everything, give you a list of what's wrong, and you pick it up in the afternoon. Which seems like a very obvious thing, but like... I mean, I guess when, like, car stuff is so new and so small, the people who buy cars will be people who know how their cars work. That's true. Whereas if you're like me now, I'm like, I don't know what my car does. (laughs) 
what is a car? Please tell me if my car is good. <laughs> I know, like, academically what my car does, but I don't know enough to, like, You can't be like, oh, yeah, engine. that funny noise means this is wrong, and that's in this bit of the engine or whatever. Yeah, I wish I knew more about my car. Well, if you lived in 1918, when you checked your car in for a service, you could also, rather than just living there for the day, stay for the day and work alongside the mechanic and see what they did and learn how to look after your car. Alice sounds great, and that's a great service, and I wish it still existed. I agree. She also did, like, lectures or short courses for women just about how cars work and like how to look after your car that sounds very good because i always feel so intimidated (laughs) when i take my car to the mechanic and i'm like they could say literally anything to me and i would be like that sounds like it's probably a problem with my engine (laughs) those were some car words (laughs) yeah i was researching this episode and at the same time like i was having problems with my car and it's making a weird noise and i was like i'm gonna have to take it to a mechanic i'm a young woman who doesn't know anything about cars i'm just gonna get ripped off it's gonna be bad and then I was like, I wonder if there's, like, a female mechanic. And I was, like, Googling, like, oh, female mechanic in Melbourne. And then, like, it hadn't occurred. I had, like, the two pages open on my computer. Like, <laughs> yes. Alice Anderson, Australia's first all-female mechanic. And this Google search. And it just hadn't occurred to me that I was, like, looking for a service that had existed in 1918 and does, does still exist, Oh, really? There is one in Melbourne. But I was like, Alice did this in 1918. This shouldn't still be so rare. Anyway. So that's what Alice offered. It's a great idea. It's a very good service. (laughs) And so her business was very successful. Thanks, Alice. Would that it continue? (laughs) Yeah. I'd go to this garage. Where is it in Kew? It was on Cotham Road in Kew. Oh, I know like exactly where that is. Yeah, me and Eli actually drove past it this morning on our way to the cemetery. Yeah, so about now it got a bit too big for out the back of her rooming house and she decided she needed a bigger garage. So she purchased a vacant block across the road from her rooming house. Imagine if you could purchase land in Kew. Well, we don't actually know how she afforded this land because she didn't have the money. She would have had to take out a loan, but you needed a man to underwrite a loan. Okay. And she tried to get JT to do it, and the bank was like, no. Oh, yeah, not him. (laughs) So she was still talking to JT at this time. But, yeah, she would never tell her family who had underwritten the loan, and we have no idea who did it. Okay. So that's interesting. So, yeah, Alice couldn't afford land in queue. She did take out a loan and was in debt for a long time because of it. So, yeah, she bought a block of land at 88 Cotham Road, queue. She designed the building herself. Oh, well. She was apparently very good at design. One architect described it as, quote, one of the best balanced and most attractive looking dwellings with which I am acquainted. Wow. So, good job, Alice. Just, like, natural prodigy at architecture. <laughs> Well, her father was an engineer and did teach his daughters, like, some kind of parts of his trade of, like, you know, how do you design and build things? Yeah. I guess she learned some there and she had some natural talent. So it was apparently quite, like, a nice, light and open building, which is not kind of what you think of in a garage. Mm. There was also a small room off of the garage office where Alice lived. And so she was regularly up working till three or four in the morning and then she would just go and sleep for a few hours in her little room and come back and work more. And... We've talked about how she was terrible at cooking. She lived off a diet of what she could cook on the little gas burner that she had in her little room. So she'd just like fry chops or fry bacon and eggs. Or Okay, so she like ate eggs on toast all day, every day. Yeah, she ate eggs on toast all day, every day. That's correct. When Alice did need a break from work, she would go to stay with Jessie Macbeth, who, as I've mentioned, ran the hospital down the road. Jessie Macbeth, as I've also mentioned, was in a relationship with another woman. Oh, yes, Katie. With Katie. And that was a pretty open secret, so... 
Yeah. From what we can gather from the way like Alice's sisters talk about it, for example, that was kind of just general knowledge. Yeah. People knew that was the case. And so the fact that Alice would go and stay with Jesse also led to rumours that Alice was in a relationship with Jesse. Is this just one of those things where people are like, well, Jesse's in an unconventional relationship, so why would we assume that she's only in one? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. I mean, so Alice's sister Katrine mentioned these rumours. She doesn't really mention how that fits in with the fact that we know Jesse was already in a relationship, whether people... We're just like, Jessie's a lesbian, she's with Alice and didn't think about it, or whether people were like, well, three women who are lesbians, why not? Like, just more lesbians, all with each other, <laughs> or like, what they might have thought was happening, but there yeah. were rumours that Alice and Jessie were in a relationship. Jessie was about 30 years older than Alice, and according to Claire, it was more of a mother-child relationship. Okay. So Claire says, there would be nothing physical to it. Jessie was so protective and so understanding of Alice's needs. To just escape for a little while from the garage and have a quiet sleep and be looked after for one night, I think it was real love. I mean, it sounds nice and wholesome then. Yeah, so Claire sees it as like being this very important and close and deep relationship in Alice's life, but once again she refuses to believe that there's a possibility that Alice is a lesbian. I mean, I would be very happy to believe that that was just like a sort of supportive maternal mm. friendship, just because I'm always wary of age differences. And also I think queer historians can, in searching for queer representation, be like too quick to be like, oh, well, two women who were close and they're both lesbians, they're definitely sleeping together. Yeah, where maybe they're just like two women who, like, two lesbians have a lot to connect over yeah. and a lot they can give to each other without being in a romantic relationship. Yeah. yeah and, like, like, I'm not 100% sure if Alice was a lesbian, and we'll talk about that a bit more later. Just want to say that. But, like, yeah, they have a lot in common. They both drove cars. They were both kind of independent women in a time when that wasn't yeah. normal. They both, if not being attracted to women, had very unconventional, like, ways of approaching being a woman. Yeah. Like, they could have been together, but they may not have been together. So the reason me and Eli went to the cemetery this morning was not just to visit Alice's grave, though we did want to visit Alice's grave, but was to check what I believe may be the case, which is that she and Jessie are buried together. Huh. Which I haven't read any documentation of. I've just physically seen that they are in the same grave, so... Okay. That's interesting. There you go. Yeah. How did you know to go there and check then? So I'd read that Alice was buried in Kew Cemetery, mm -hmm. and so I was just like, oh, huh, I'll look up on the Kew Cemetery website and see where the grave is, just, you know, yeah. for fun. So I did that, and it said, you know, Alice is buried in Kew Cemetery in a grave with, when you look up just on the grave yeah. registry, it's like with Alan Anderson, so with her mum, and with Jessie Macbeth. And the details on the online thing were wrong for Jessie Macbeth. So some things matched what I knew about Jessie Macbeth, but then it said, like, Jessie Macbeth age at death zero. Oh, okay. And I was like, well, zero could mean a baby who died in infancy, but zero could also mean you just failed to input the age. Yeah. So I wanted to go and check. And we went and checked, and it is this Jessie Macbeth who is buried with okay. us. Okay, okay. And it's just the three of them in the grave, Alice, her mum, and Jessie. So it's that's interesting. Like, I don't know, Alice and her two mums? Like, <laughs> Maybe it's just Alice and her two mums. Yeah, yeah. It is quite interesting. And Jessie died quite a while after Alice, so it's oh. also quite interesting then that She's quite a lot older, though. Alice died quite young. We'll talk about okay. that a bit later on. Yep. It's interesting, and I'd like to know more about why Jessie decided to be buried there and what family Jessie had. Where's Katie buried? Yeah, I don't um, know if Jessie and Katie were still together when Jessie died or where Katie might be buried. I mean, it's definitely not common that people are buried in the same grave with their friend. No, it's not super common to be buried in the same grave as your friend. Yeah. like you Especially get... not when it is a family, like Alice and her mother are buried together. Like, yeah. I guess it's a family grave in a way. Yeah, like you get buried in a grave with like your partner or your children or 
Yeah. 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 So it's quite interesting. And I didn't really kind of look into it more because I only confirmed it today. Yeah. Because that was the first time we had a chance to go to the cemetery. We coincidentally also found Lesbia Harford, who we did an episode on. I mean, not coincidentally. We knew she was in that cemetery and we looked her up. But, like, yeah. you know, it so happened they were buried in the same cemetery. So we found Lesbia. So check out our blog for some photos of Lesbia's grave and Alice's grave. As well as running the garage, Alice wrote a regular column for female motorists in the magazine Women's World. She founded our female motorists club. And she also turned her hand to invention. So she invented a few practical things. She invented a new, like, canvas hood for cars. Like, what was the roof of cars at the time before we invented metal hoods? She invented the, like, it's called a creeper, but people probably won't know that name. The, like, board on wheels that mechanics use to slide under a car. Oh, yes. She invented a foldable one that you can really easily carry around in your car with you. Okay. I'm not clear. And something I read suggested that that was the first time anyone had invented a creeper. I'm not clear if she invented a foldable one or just invented the concept. But anyway, she invented that. And my favourite of Alice's inventions, it's called the radiator. Okay. (laughs) So it's a tank that clamps to the car's radiator and you can fill it with your soup or your tea or your coffee or whatever. And the heat of the engine keeps your soup or tea or coffee warm and it's got a little tap at the bottom of the tank so you can easily just dispense your hot beverage when you pull over for a picnic because we have thermoses now. I know, but like that's you're continually generating heat when you drive. True, and why that, don't we use that? Yeah, because thermoses do eventually get cold, but yeah. not the radiator. Exactly. Where is my radiator? I don't know why the radiator didn't catch on more. Frankly, I think it's great. So when I she took fun. people out on their tours on their picnics, she would just get out her radiator and, and give, give them like a hot soup. cup of hot soup from her tap in her car. <laughs> Isn't that just so luxurious? That's so good. Like, cars were a much more kind of upper-class thing at the time. But yeah, there was one car that Alice used to serve in her garage, for example, that was a Rolls-Royce, and it had candelabras, like, candle holders in the car. So you could have, like, your nice candles burning while you drove around. So it was a different experience. So Alice's business continued to grow. By the mid-1920s, she'd begun to take customers on longer interstate tours. She'd even take cars across to Tasmania, so they would have to be winched up onto a boat, and then the boat would sail over to Tasmania, and they'd winch the car off the boat, and she'd do a tour of Tasmania. On one trip to Sydney, she was written up in the local newspaper, which happened to Alice a fair bit by this point. Like, it was quite a novelty that this woman was running a garage. So she got a write-up in the Sydney paper, and it says, You ask this slip of a boy girl for her credentials, and out of voluminous pockets in her chauffeur's jacket comes a heterogeneous heap of letters and tickets. <laughs> I just really like the mental image. She was just like, you know, papers pouring out everywhere. They were like, what are your qualifications? And she was like, do I have qualifications? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So write-ups like this are pretty common at the time, which are obviously kind of grappling with just kind of confusion over a woman is driving a car and working as a mechanic and they don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. A lot of them will often also really focus on, like, don't worry, she's still feminine, like. Yeah. There's one from the Brisbane Courier, for example, which writes about her office, and it says... Soft feminine touches, flowers, books, a piece of knitting, and a big tabby cat purring on the window ledge indicated that for all its ledges and records, the office was the domain of a woman. I, like I how- love the way that owning a cat is only is feminine. <laughs> yeah, only women. And books as well. <laughs> it's weird. I guess maybe, like, books comes under, like, keeping things that aren't about work in your office. Yeah, I mean, I guess those are the things. It's like, these aren't necessary to doing the job. She used to um keep a Greek language textbook, like a classical Greek language textbook in her glove box. 
Just in case she was like stuck in traffic or she broke down or something. Yeah, or she's waiting outside to pick someone up. She's studying some Greek. Yeah, she really liked reading. Other articles subtly hint at the scandal inherent in the idea of women running a garage. So Home Magazine in 1920 published an article titled The Woman Who Does, which when you read it, it sounds pretty positive, but the title is very reminiscent of the film that had just come out quite recently called The Woman Who Did, which was about a woman who got pregnant out of wedlock and then died by suicide. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, I see. So they're on the surface like, oh, this is great. This is a modern woman. And they're also kind of like, but like, does that mean society is falling apart? Most of the media about Alice, I would say it's, Pretty positive, but in a very patronizing way, where it's like, oh, look, a girl can drive a car. This is also, I was going to say, still a thing that comes up when magazines or newspapers or like mm. online publications Articles. are writing about women who are doing unconventional things is that they will invariably open the article by describing what she looks like and what she's wearing. And yeah, like, and how feminine she looks, even though she's doing this masculine job. Uh, or, yeah, and, you know, describe her, like, elfin face and her pixie oh, haircut yeah. and her unassuming demeanour. A- Alice is absolutely described with those, like, elfin and, like, boyish. And, yeah. Like, she's described as, yeah, they use a lot of those words that are still yeah. used when we want to be sexist about women doing... Male jobs. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of what happens in this podcast is just like, oh, yeah, this is still how it is, isn't it? Oh, yes. Still Googling for all female (laughs) mechanics. Yep. Yep. Please, Alice, rise from the grave and service my car. (laughs) Yes, thank you. I would appreciate that. I'll drive to Q for that. I drove to Q today to visit Alice. I can drive to Q again to get my carpets. Probably Um, if you leave it overnight in the cemetery, Alice will rise from the grave and service it for you. Okay, we'll test that next time. It's like Bloody Mary, but for a friendly lesbian mechanic. (laughs) A friendly maybe lesbian mechanic. (laughs) So Alice's garage provided something of a safe haven for people assigned female at birth who didn't want to conform to society's expectations of them. I don't have any specific examples of like people we might consider non-binary or trans men working at the garage, but I suspect that there could have been some, and I feel like it is an environment that would have attracted those people, and it definitely attracted people who were not conventionally feminine. And Yeah. So the employees all wore masculine clothing at work, but some of them would also wear masculine clothing outside of work, and they referred to each other by surnames rather than first names, which is generally considered a masculine thing, and all these kinds of things. It was a way for a person assigned female at birth to be in this very masculine environment, basically. Yeah. Many of the staff are also described as being quite masculine in their manner and their appearance. For example, Claire describes employee Gabrielle de Fleurel. She's French, as you can tell from the name. She's known as Fleury. It's also weird how we think of French as a feminine language. Yeah. That's super weird. Just German's I'd... masculine, but French is feminine. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up while we're there. Why are we like this? <laughs> Fleury is described by Claire as a very masculine type. Thick set, sturdy, strong, definite, practical, emotional. I thought it was interesting that emotional was in there. I mean, I guess it's a thing where, like, men are permitted to have, like, outbursts of temper. Like, loud laughter, loud, like... And, like, shouting matches. and Yeah, and just, like, loud reactions to things that women are expected to contain. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Like, women are called emotional, but really what they mean is you're expected to have one emotion and that's crying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Meanwhile, men are allowed to have a range of emotions, but yeah. not crying, but loudly. 
Yeah, and Fleury was apparently, like, very quick-tempered and would, like, swear in French a lot when things went wrong and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that is what Claire means by emotional there. Yeah, so many of the employees are described as looking quite masculine, and in their uniforms they were often mistaken for and therefore treated like men which they seem to, like, find quite entertaining and to enjoy. So men would speak to them, for example, in ways that they would never speak to women. One story that the staff really enjoyed retelling was when a man came into the garage and said to employee Ella Jones, is there any way a bloke can have a leak here? And then realised he was speaking to a woman (laughs) and was, like, absolutely appalled at the way he'd just spoken to a woman. Yeah. So on the one hand, Alice's garage kind of linked into ideas at the time about, like, modernity and androgyny being very fashionable and you've got like flappers and so forth at the time Mm -hmm. and independent women were kind of linked into all that and seen as quite good but on the other hand her staff were walking a fine line between seen as like progressive modern women and being seen as in some way some kind of perversion or i mean i feel it's kind of a reflection of that thing that we continue to have where the acceptable kind of like non-conformity to binary gender is a kind of feminine boyishness like yeah. a kind of androgynous boyishness and if you mm. go beyond that as like someone assigned female at birth you go beyond that to being like strong or bulky or like yeah it suddenly becomes like either comical or like or ugly or yeah yeah and i think that's very true and you see that in the papers when the papers will always describe them as being boyish and things like that yeah 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 no one ever describes a woman as manly no, but they no. will describe one as boyish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That boyish is like a kind of a flattering thing to say about a. Yeah, especially in this time when like that straight up and down, like flat chested yeah. look, short hair is like becoming the kind of new yeah. fashion. Like boyish is kind of something you can say about a slender woman almost without calling into question her femininity. Yeah, no, that's true. Because boyish is considered kind of androgynous, and yeah, then when we look at androgyny, we often just kind of think of it as. Being a skinny woman. <laughs> Which is weird, because, like, a prepubescent girl is the same shape as a prepubescent boy. But I think in some way, like, if we they were described say- as girlish, it would also fit with a lot of the other adjectives that, like, newspapers are using to describe yeah. these women. Like, said that they have short hair, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But girlishness also, I guess, comes with a kind of connotation of like frivolity yeah yeah that's true that's true where i don't know boyishness has this kind of adventure yeah yeah sort of sincerity i don't know how to say as a society we do a lot of like i feel weird romanticization of boyhood oh yeah like the idealization of the boarding school years for men and like i think of like oxford men you know yeah and of like getting into scrapes yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what I meant when I said adventure. Yeah, and like... Tomfoolery. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of like, oh, look at these girls getting into scrapes like boys. And it's like, this is a woman running a business yeah. for her job to support her family. Yeah, like this is a grown woman with a, with a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's one quote which I didn't include, which kind of mentions, oh, you look at her at first and you think it's a man. And then you're really surprised that she can do all this stuff because she's just a young girl. And it was like, she's 20 years old. She's an adult. I apologize, listen. I think our neighbours have just begun a party. So if you can hear some background just kind of cheering and music, that's them and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, but to get back to that kind of idea about masculine women and how they're understood, 
One of Alfred's employees, Marjorie Horn, recalls that sometimes the employees were viewed with open hostility on the street and what she says is, I suppose they thought I was some mannish old thing, a he-woman. I thought that was interesting when we just kind of had that conversation about like young boyish androgyny and she uses the words like mannish and old when she's talking about it being viewed negatively. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think it's it's very much like that thing about women we have as a society in general where they are acceptable as long as they're youthful. Yeah. Like yeah. the range of things you can do as a woman and be acceptable is far greater if you're like young and conventionally attractive. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And yeah, like if society is like, oh, these boyish young girls doing their garage, like if Alice had continued this business for 20 years, how would she have been viewed in 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. So as well as gender non-conforming people, the garage definitely also attracted lesbian and bisexual customers. Lesbian or bisexual, I should say, because I don't specifically know the orientations of these women. Jessie Macbeth is one example. University lecturer Marjorie Herring, who lived with her partner, a nurse named Dorothy McIntyre, is another. And it likely also attracted lesbian or bisexual staff, although... Once again, I don't have specific examples except what we know about Alice herself. We do have a photo, though, from 1924, which shows two of Alice's employees. They're sitting on the running board of a car. They're both dressed in pants and shirts and ties, so masculine clothing. And they're holding hands. They've got their arms around each other, and they're staring into each other's eyes. Their faces very close together. It's a very romantic-looking photo. Is this also labelled Alice's employees pretending to be boyfriends? (laughs) There's no label on this one. And I don't have any idea of the context of the photo, so I've seen it in Loretta Smith's book, and she said it's in her own collection. Okay. And she doesn't mention where she got it. So Why I'm... does Loretta Smith has a, have a personal collection of Alice-related photographs? I don't really know. She's the first person to write a biography of Alice, like a full book biography. So I guess some were just kind of out there. Yeah, I'm very curious as to what the setting was. It like why somebody took that photo. I mean, what year are we in now? 1924. To what extent is like private, like amateur camera technology available? I think box brownies existed by then. But I guess the thing that interests me is like most of the other photos I know of, excluding that one of Alice pretending to be that woman's boyfriend, are taken, for example, by magazines that were coming to write an article about the garage or something like that. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just interesting that we have that one, which is quite intimate. It's presumably a personal... Yeah, a personal memento. I'd really like to know who the women are in the photo. Yeah. But we don't have that information. Yeah, regarding Alice herself, as far as we know, she never had a relationship with a man. A 1919 letter shows an ongoing conversation with her mother about this, where Alice writes, My dear mother... I will at once ease your sore heart by telling you that I have no understanding with any young man and that you'll be the first I will tell when I have. I've not the slightest intention of marrying until I get a man a darn sight better than me, which is going to be jolly hard to find. (laughs) Good job, Alice. Yeah, I liked that. I mean, I guess to some extent there is a thing where like, and especially at the time, it's difficult to find a man who would be okay with a woman who was like running her own successful business, supporting herself. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of married women working, like, in the public service, for example, you couldn't work once you were married. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of married women working was, that didn't happen. So even in, like, real measurable terms, Alice kind of possibly does have to find a man who is better than her. Yeah, she has to find a man who will let her do what she wants to do, which most men just wouldn't have at the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there is a brief quote from one of her sisters later on where she kind of says, oh, I said to Alice, I know you want to get married and have kids, but, you know, you're not doing it. And then Alice was like, well, I can't saddle a man with my debts. Yeah, yeah. So she has some practical reasons why she may not have pursued a relationship with a man that may not be an attraction to women. But it's also possible that that's, like, an easy answer to give someone. Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, no, I've got my job, I've got all these debts, I can't marry a man. Yeah. When what she actually means is, like, I have no interest in marrying a man. Yeah. Because I'm interested in women. And in that same letter to her mum, she does go on to talk about how she's recently had a proposal from a man, which she rejected, and which she says was the scream of the garage, because the poor man... (laughs) I feel sorry for this man, frankly. Can you imagine just like a bunch of butch women just like laughing at you when you propose? It's a bad time. The scream of the garage, because the poor man was very much in earnest and in love. Oh no. Yeah. And Loretta Smith in her biography wonders why Alice would describe a man's genuine interest in proposal as a scream and suggests that perhaps to the garage, just the idea of Alice being interested in marrying a man was just so funny. Yeah. That's why she says that was the reaction. Yeah. So Alice's sisters, Claire and Frankie, who both deny that Alice was interested in women when they were interviewed later by historians about Alice. Yeah. Both kind of mentioned various men who Alice might have been interested or who might have been interested in Alice, but they couldn't name a single one that she'd actually had a relationship with. Okay. So they were just kind of like, oh, no, no, no. Alice is not a lesbian. There were men around Alice. Yeah. But we don't know the name of any man who she was, like, particularly close with or possibly had a relationship with or even who her sisters who, like, are actively, like, no, she wasn't a lesbian could say she'd had a relationship with. Yeah. In 1926, Alice began to make various travel plans. She wanted to do a round-the-world tour in her car. Oh, cool. Was she just going to, like, ship it from country to country? No, she was going to take a boat to America and then buy an American car in America because they drive on the other side of the road. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. drive around America and then take a boat across to England and then across to Europe and drive around. How is she going to afford this? It was going to be a work thing, so she was going to have like six passengers and oh, okay. do a world tour. Okay. It booked out pretty fast, so she was going to do it in 1927 and by like January 1926, four of the six seats in the car were booked. Yep. So it was like a pretty great idea. Another one of her more long-term travel plans, so after this world tour, was that she wanted to visit the UK to visit her family who lives over there and also to meet other people who are running businesses like her. So there were a few garages in the UK that were like what Alice was doing. How did she find out about those? She was in the Lyceum Club, which is an all-female club for um, kind of women who are experts in their field. So a lot of Melbourne Uni graduates were in the club and stuff like that. And they'd all just kind of get together and talk about their professions and everything and that so it's kind of like a networking club for like yeah yeah women in fields that women aren't usually in yeah that's what it is and the lyceum club was first founded in london that had a branch in melbourne so she would have heard through those channels okay just like the newspaper as well one notable example of a garage she wanted to visit was called the x garage that's and- very mysterious <laughs> yes and then just like the letter x letter x yeah letter x x garage was founded in part by joe Costairs. Okay. So Joe is variously identified as a butch lesbian or as a trans man. I haven't done enough research on Joe to tell you for sure. One day we'll do an episode on Joe. Joe was also a speedboat racer. Joe was very masculine in dress and appearance, uh, heavily tattooed, and ran this garage that was entirely staffed and owned by people assigned female at birth. I just wanted to mention Joe, so when we do an episode on Joe, I can be like, remember when Alice was going to visit Joe? Because that will happen sometime. I'm prepared. Yeah. 
So before she undertook these overseas journeys, Alice felt she should know something about her own country. Okay. So she decided to drive from Melbourne to Alice Springs in the centre of Australia and back, which is a journey of about 6,000 kilometres or 3,500 miles. Accompanying Alice would be her friend Jessie Webb. A different Jessie. A different Jessie. Jessie was the first female history lecturer at Melbourne Uni. Oh, cool. Which is cool. She specialised in ancient Greece. She was one of the founders of the Melbourne Lyceum Club. Yep. And a few years before, she had made the journey from Cape Town to Cairo, so up the full length of Africa, with her friend and fellow Melbourne University lecturer, Georgina Sweet. Okay. Okay. But when she was going to do her world tour, did she, like, have her route planned out beforehand? How did she know? How did she get information about, like, where she should drive through Russia and that kind of thing? I don't know if she was going to drive through Russia. You just assumed she was going to drive through Russia. That was just, like, Um, an example. But, like, where do you get information about that kind of thing like there still would have been like guidebooks like there have always been guidebooks forever okay. and she could have probably written to people overseas as well yeah she is presumably doing something like fairly new though like there's no car travel guidebook I guess probably not at this stage I would say no okay yeah that that is true that is true yeah but yeah I don't know the details of how she would have planned that journey and it's definitely the case here on her trip to Alice Springs like she could drive from Melbourne to Adelaide, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But you didn't drive from Adelaide to Alice Springs. Like, that was just a ridiculous thing to do because... I mean, it's still a ridiculous thing to <laughs> it's do. It's still a ridiculous thing to do. But, like, you took the train to Unadatta, which is as far as the train went. Yeah. And then you took a camel because it's sandy desert and you can't really drive a car through sandy desert. Yeah. Which is kind of still true today. Apparently you can, but only in second gear and only as long as you don't ever stop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, like, driving to Alice Springs is a bit of an intense experience today. It was a much more intense experience then. So, the car that Alice and Jessie took was the Austin 7, known as the Baby Austin because it was the smallest car on the market. Okay. So, it was generally marketed as a woman's car for being small and easy to handle and easy to maintain. And so part of the point of their drive was to kind of show off what could be done by women in this supposed, like, women's car. Yeah. And so Alice got sponsorship from several companies to provide fuel and oil and ensure that she got, like, regular updates put in the newspapers about how she was going and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a publicity stunt for women's driving, basically. Okay. Alice does seem, like, very good at networking. She does seem very good at networking. I think the Lyceum Club was, like, a lot of the reason for that because she was meeting all these other women, and also just because of the family she came from. Like, although they had no money growing up, like, her parents were quite well-connected. So Alice and Jessie departed on the evening of the 6th of August 1926. The Lyceum Club threw them a farewell party, which was held in the English, Scottish, and Australian bank building on the corner of Queen's and Collins Street. In case you're wondering why I'm telling you this very specific detail, it's because that building is now the Bank on Collins Bar, where Queer as Fact went for drinks last year. We did, indeed. <laughs> so I just liked that. I thought that was good. I'm glad that Alice had drinks there, too. I hope she didn't have drinks, because she's about to go on a long and difficult garden. <laughs> so they departed on the evening of the 6th of August. One friend gifted them two mascots to take with them, two little potatoes wearing curly red wigs. I don't know potatoes. Literal potatoes. Okay. I don't understand, but I liked that. So Alice and Jessie drove from Melbourne to Adelaide. They drove about nine or ten hours a day. 
which is yeah. pretty intense. And they were driving along what would later become the Great Ocean Road, but was then just an unmade track. So the Great Ocean Road is still like an impressive cliff top road that sometimes falls in the sea today. Does the Great Ocean Road fall in the sea sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. At the time it was an unmade track along yeah. the cliff, so it was quite dangerous. She could have taken an easier inland route, but going on this dramatic, scenic, dangerous clifftop journey made for much better publicity. Yeah. It probably was also just much more fun for Alice, who likes a challenge. And um, I mean, she is doing this as like a publicity thing about yeah. like what a woman's car is capable of. Yeah, yeah. So it's much better from that perspective to take the coastal cliff road than the like whatever. It's been flat for three days, and I'm in Nil Road. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. No nil. offense, Nil. <laughs> but there sure isn't anything there. Shout out to the giant koala, the only interesting thing on the road from Melbourne um, to Adelaide. So from Adelaide, they headed north. This area between Adelaide and Alice Springs, as I mentioned, it was a very sandy desert where cars just kind of didn't go. When cars did go, they would often carry rolls of carpet in the car. So they'd get out the carpet, roll it out under the wheels, drive along the carpet, roll up the carpet, carry the carpet to the front again, and so on. Why would you even do that? That would take so long. It's like, hire a camel. I know, it's ridiculous. I don't know why you would drive this except if you were trying to make a point like Alice was. Yeah. Alice and Jessie didn't have any carpet though because they had a baby Austin and rolls of carpet would not fit in the baby Austin. So they just kind of had to do their best. They didn't have much hope of help if something did go wrong. The kind of strategy if you were making this drive was to keep the overland telegraph line in sight and if something went wrong and you were desperately in need of help to damage the telegraph line because that way someone would notice and come out to fix the and telegraph come out line. to fix the line, and they'd find you stranded in your car. But damaging the telegraph line was illegal, and you could be fined or imprisoned for it. So that was like an absolute last resort if you were going to die. Otherwise, luckily they didn't have to do that. I hope they took a lot of water. They did, but they didn't take enough water for the journey. So they did just kind of have to find water on the way. Yeah, like Alice took guns and hunted food for them, and they would find water on the way. Okay. So they did, to some degree, just kind of scavenge. Three weeks after leaving Melbourne, Alice and Jessie arrived in Alice Springs. Good job, guys. They made it without any, like, major problems on the way. They just kind of did it. Nice. It's pretty good. They immediately, the next day, turned around to go home because Jessie had to be back to university in time for term to start. <laughs> because she was a lecturer. <laughs> oh, God, she was a lecturer. <laughs> she was a lecturer, yeah. What if they just didn't make it? Imagine you get, like... An email before <laughs> your class starts a telegram being like, don't come in tomorrow. Class is cancelled. Your lecturer died in the desert. Your lecturer is in prison for damaging the overland <laughs> telegram. <laughs> yeah. 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 So they turned around and drove home again the next day. Jesse made the decision to leave Alice at Unadata where the train started and get on the train to go home. Okay, that makes sense. Reliable journey. Yeah, like we're not sure exactly why she did that. Alice seemed quite surprised when she talked about it afterwards. I mean, it just, I don't know, it just makes perfect sense if you're, like, yeah. trying to get back to Melbourne in time to go to work. Yeah, like, she needed to get back to work. Like, take the, like, more reliable transport. Yeah, and the sponsorship and so on was about the trip to Alice Springs, yeah. proving they could get to Alice Springs. They didn't need to prove they could get back. Like, yeah, they, like, once you've done it. They'd shown they could do it. So, they arrived in Unadata, Jesse got on the train, and Alice made the decision then to sell the car and also get the train back to Melbourne. Yeah. Her friend Kathleen came up from Melbourne to join her, and they made the journey back home by train. Sounds nice. And Alice and Kathleen arrived back home on the 11th of September. The newspaper describes them as sunburnt but happy. Oh, good. 
One thing Alice talked about a lot when she got back in the newspaper was her encounters with other women who lived in the outback. Many of these women were living very isolated lives and they were alone for weeks at a time while their husbands were out droving or whatever jobs men do in the desert. (laughs) Drove. So these women were generally very excited to see Alice and Jessie and also kind of just like, why are you here by choice? But they were very happy to kind of have Alice and whoever she was with, uh, Jessie or Kathleen, turn up and connect them with the outside world. So one asked her to post her some pins and needles when she got back to Melbourne because she just couldn't get them on her station. Another asked Alice if she would give her a haircut in the modern style, which Uh, means short like Alice's hair. Yeah, so this woman asked Alice to cut her hair. Alice, from what I can gather, had probably maybe cut her sister's hair when she was a kid. But, like, she was quite apprehensive about cutting this woman's hair. She agreed, and she did it. And Kathleen apparently was like, hooray, it's a good cut when it was done, which shows that they really weren't expecting much. (laughs) I mean, if you guess if you don't see other people for weeks at a time, and like, like by the time someone comes, it'll have grown out anyway, yeah. and you'll be like, oh yeah, this used to be very fashionable. Like, oh yeah, I was so fashionable when that like lady motorist came from Melbourne. Yeah, and they'll be like, wow, you have such adventures, Maureen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, her husband will come back and she'll be like, I had the best time. <laughs> and her husband will be like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, the lives of these women obviously made a pretty big impression on Alice. So when she returned home, Frankie asked her if she'd get married someday, if only for arrest. And Alice was arrest. Like, arrest do you call it? I think it's only a change of work. I was going to say, like, studies have shown generally that upon marriage, women do more housework than they did when they were single, and men do less. Yeah, men bring more work to a house than they do. Yeah, thanks guys. Yeah, so uh, if you're a man in a household with a woman, maybe just think about that today and go wash your dishes. Okay, so we're going to talk about Alice's death now. I'm just flagging that because she died quite young and quite suddenly. Okay, okay. We could spend a lot of time talking about the circumstances of her death, but I don't want that to be a big focus of the episode, so... yeah. We'll try and talk about it pretty briefly and not speculate too much. So on the evening of the 17th of September, so it's just under a week after she returned from Alice Springs, Mm. Alice was out the back of the garage cleaning the guns she'd taken on the trip. One of the employees, uh, Mary Eady, said she heard a shot and went out the back to find Alice lying on the floor having been shot in the head. Alice was taken to Lancewood Hospital where she died very soon after. Okay. Her friends and family testified at the inquest that they had no reason to believe that Alice was considering suicide before her death, and her death was ruled accidental, as, you know, there was a bullet in the barrel of the gun, she didn't know when she was cleaning it, and it went off. In 2006, Frankie's granddaughter, Penelope Alexander, published a biography of Frankie, in which she wrote, Alice was too well taught not to check for a spare cartridge before setting about cleaning her gun. In fact, she was shot accidentally by a young employee at the garage who did not know that a cartridge had been left in the gun. When she followed this up, Alice's biographer Loretta Smith found that this was generally the family understanding of what had happened, that a young employee, probably 18-year-old Mary Eady, had been with Alice when Alice was cleaning her guns, and that she'd picked up Alice's revolver not knowing there was still a bullet in it and the gun had accidentally gone off, killing Alice. And then that this employee and Alice's family had decided to cover that up to protect marry Edie from a manslaughter charge. That makes sense, I guess. It sounds like an accident. Yeah, like it sounds like an accident. The family story makes sense and explains a few kind of inconsistencies in what was said at the inquest. Yeah. Just about like who went out the back when and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So the family story to me seems like the truth. Seems to make sense. But I didn't want us to spend a while picking apart the details and... Yeah, I don't want this to be an episode about how Alice Mm. died. Alice's funeral was held three days after her death. Her garage closed for the first time since it had opened in 1919. 
and 14 of her employees attended the funeral in their chauffeur uniforms and carried her coffin to the grave. Aww. One newspaper reported, For a woman not in public life, the funeral was an amazingly big one. Miss Anderson was a brave woman and an attractive one, full of vitality and life, with a magnetism that drew people instinctively towards her. Another wrote, possibly no woman in Melbourne was better known. After Alice's death, her garage was taken over by her friend and accountant Ethel Beige. Ethel said when she took on the role, I'm not taking up the work for the sole purpose of making money, but with the idea of making a memorial to my dear friend Alice Anderson. The garage was eventually sold off to a male owner and continued in some form or another until it ended its life as Alice Anderson Motor School in the 1980s. What happened at Alice Anderson Motor School? It was just driving lessons by that point. Okay. But it did continue as an all-female garage into the 1950s, I believe, even after okay. it was, So it had a male owner, but a female manager. And um, Did he own, like, other garages Yeah, he owned or? another yeah. garage in the same neighborhood, and he just bought Alice's as well. Okay, that yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah. The building itself that Alice had designed was demolished in the 1950s, but you can see a reproduction at the National Motor Museum in South Australia along with an exhibition about Alice's life. So that's our next Careers Fact Road trip. Is it a permanent exhibition? It is a permanent exhibition, yeah. Cool. Which is cool. So I want to finish just by talking a little bit more about Alice's sexuality, because I feel like it has just been kind of up in the air throughout the episode, and to some degree it will remain up in the air. Yeah. So, you know, tenuous reason for this to be on Queer as Fact, but not too tenuous. I mean... I think it's valid. Yeah, I know. I sort of feel like... It's like when we talked about Julius Caesar, at some point, any, like, talking about how society interacts with gender and sexuality has some mm. value to queer as fact. Yeah, and, like, so Alice is kind of recognised now, like, in the public mind by people who know about her. Like, she's not super famous. Yeah, by, as... like, the 40 people who have heard of her. <laughs> yeah, the 40 people who have heard of her as a queer figure. So, like... Soon like... 3,000 people will have heard of her. That's true. We're going to massively boost Alice's profile. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 2016, a group named Alice's Garage was founded to support older queer people. So, its website reads, The Garage pays homage to Alice Anderson, a motor mechanic who set up an all-female motor service in Kew in 1919. We recognise Alice empowered women with information, opportunities, and respect for their capacities. Almost 100 years later, we build on Alice's principles to empower LGBTI elders through information, opportunities, and respect for their capacity for autonomy. So, even if they're not specifically saying whether she was queer or not, they're kind of recognising her as... Like, uh, having a queer legacy. Yeah, having a queer legacy and being kind of an ancestor to what they're doing for queer people. Yeah. Yeah. I do sometimes feel on this podcast, when I'm doing specifically women's episodes, I'm like, is this even queer or is this just for, like, a feminist podcast? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I feel like when you just kind of talk about how women interact with gender and, like, gender non-conforming women go about their lives, it's like treading that line. Yeah, I was going to say, like, providing a space for people assigned female at birth who don't fit into, like, societal expectations of women. Yeah. Yeah, is that a, like, feminist thing to do? Is that providing a space for, like, trans men? Is that... Yeah, like, is that providing a space for butch lesbians and trans men? And just, you know, is that just feminist? Because you can be a straight cis woman who wants to wear pants and work in a garage and... Yeah. Yeah, so it's, like, all of those things at once. Yeah. Yeah, so I do just want to say a couple more things about Alice's sexuality. As I've mentioned, Claire and Frankie both 
deny she was a lesbian. Her other sister, Katrine, on the other hand, said to historian Mimi Collagen several times that Alice, quote, walked with the girls. Katrine never elaborated on what that might mean, as far as I know. But presumably it's a little bit like being on the spook side. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, like, at that time you do hear those phrases like stepping out to mean dating and, like, walking out. Yeah. If somebody says, oh, she walked with the girls, that to me means she was attracted to women. I guess I could see it just meaning, like, that she prioritised women in her life. Yeah, that she prioritised a female social circle and her female yeah workplace and so forth yeah yeah that's also true unfortunately Mimi Collagen did interviews with Alice's family Mm. a few decades ago and those interviews exist and we can read the transcripts of those interviews in an archive somewhere but Katrine said this phrase walked with the girls off record uh And Mimi has said, oh, you know, Katrine said this to me several times, but we don't have the record of the context in which Katrine made this statement. That also is kind of interesting because if she said it several times, but always off record, that kind of feels like that sort of thing where it's like she wants to tell Mimi this, but she doesn't want to like, I guess, add something to Alice's reputation or legacy that she feels is negative. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. That's very true. Um, yeah. Like the fact that she's chosen to say that off record. Yeah. And, and especially off record, but several times. Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And especially when you see like Claire and Frankie are both just denying it. Yeah. And so Katrine's probably got to consider what does my family want to be out there about Alice? Yeah. And Claire and Frankie obviously don't want people to consider that Alice was a lesbian. Even though like, I thought it was quite interesting with Claire and Frankie because they are quite open in talking about homo... Like, they didn't beat about the bush. Claire says, you know, that was Alice's first experience with homosexuality. And Claire also talks about, like, how she herself didn't know about lesbians growing up until she was approached by a woman who was interested in her when she was in her early 20s. And, like, she talks quite openly about this kind of stuff. Yeah. But she will say, no, Alice wasn't a lesbian. Also entirely possible that, like, I don't know, Alice was aromantic... Alice was ace. I don't know. Like, it's one of those things I think you see a lot in history, especially about women, that the sort of social problem with them is not that they're interested in women. It's that they're not following that, like, conventional path. They don't want to marry a man and have children. And so Alice is a lesbian and Alice is not interested in a relationship with men are not necessarily yeah the same thing like they could lead to alice having you know the same social circle wanting to set up that garage yeah, yeah but not necessarily alice dating women yeah and i guess there are those few things like those relationships that claire talks about and like that photo of her pretending to be someone's boyfriend which do kind of hint that she did have relationships with yeah women. i mean we, i don't know what her relationship was with jesse Macbeth, and perhaps that was romantic but perhaps they were just close friends and it was a mother-child relationship like we just don't know yeah but yeah there are those few hints that alice had relationships with women but yeah it could just be that she didn't really want that yeah and because she was moving in that kind of non-conventional female circle and she's mixing with lesbians there's these rumors that she's a lesbian and so forth yeah but yeah i I suspect she was attracted to women based on yeah those few hints the fact that we'd have no record of her being interested in men and my final quote which mary houston who was the daughter of nancy houston who worked for alice and so when she was a little kid kind of five or six mary houston spent a lot of time around the garage yeah. She'd drive in the back of the car when Alice drove passengers out places and stuff like that. That would be so exciting for a child Oh yeah, that time. She loved it. <laughs> yeah. So Mary Houston said in her old age, and apparently totally unprompted, she was a lesbian. How do I know? 
I don't know. Maybe my mother told me. But everybody knew. Everyone just knew. On that note, I think we can wrap up. This has been Queer Fact. Thank you for bearing with us while the neighbours had a wild party. Yeah, and for bearing with us while we were only two podcasters rather than three. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you found this episode. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review, because that helps us to reach a much wider audience. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. And if you really love Queer as Fact, you can support us on Patreon, or you can buy some of our merch on our Redbubble store. And we have recently up a new line of merch so there's a second queer as fact print that you can get on your clothes and your laptop covers and your notebooks and all the stuff that you own so go and check that out we'll be back on the 15th of march when eli will be talking about university lecturer turned tattoo artist and pornographer samuel stewart thanks for listening and we'll see you next time